0: We're going to read from the Word of God this morning in the book of Jonah, chapter 4. You'll find that on page 775, if you're using the church Bible, 775, Jonah, chapter 4. And just to put it in context, I'll I'll read the last verse of chapter 3. Jonah has gone to Nineveh, that great and wicked city. And we read this when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the evil or the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And we're going to pause there. Keeping the narrative tension going. You have no idea how many people have said to me, as I've shaken my hand at the front door in the last few weeks, why have you not told us what it says in chapter 4 yet? So here's your answer. It's because we've not got to chapter 4 until this morning. And there is such a thing as narrative tension. You don't read the end of the story first, or at least you shouldn't. Spoils, it spoils everything, especially when the end… I ask people this. I ask people when they've gone to see a movie, I say, did it have a good ending? Sometimes they lie to me Now, sometimes you can can work out the ending before you've seen the movie. I mean, Titanic was only ever going to end one way, and it wasn't (laughs) good, let's be honest. So you can sometimes work out the end before before you see the thing, but I I personally personally don't want to go and go and watch a love story where boy falls in love with girl, girl gets hit by a bus. I mean, what kind of entertainment is that? You go and watch these Shakespeare's plays. You get involved with Hamlet and his girlfriend and all the rest of it. And then at the end of it, it's just so sad. You want to go and put your head in a gas oven. Do you really want that kind of conclusion to a story? I mean, that's why I like Jack Bauer. He's uncomplicated. Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, they just get in there. You know they're going to rough people up. But at the end, they're going to come out successful, victorious, and everything's going to be fine. That's, they're uncomplicated. That's the kind of guy I am. I want an uncomplicated movie, okay? Is there anything, is that too hard for people just to do that? Well, when it comes to the story of Jonah, I'm afraid, Jonah is more like real life. Because in real life, let's be honest, things don't always work out the way that we hoped they would. Boy doesn't get girl Uh, Titanic sinks. It's going to happen. It's part of the story. It has to happen. That's the way the story goes. And inevitably, the boy is going to drown, saving the girl. That, That almost goes without saying. And in the story of Jonah, things are not going to go well. We come to this fourth chapter, and it has an unsatisfactory ending. There was a kind of glimpse of hope, I think, in chapter 3. Jonah uh, had been in the belly of a fish. He was barfed up onto dry land—sorry, that's a Hebrew expression—and he's on dry land. He goes, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. That, That sounded good. He was commissioned, and he has rebelled against that commission. He's gone the opposite direction. But now he's on track, it seems he's on track. The word of the Lord came to him a second time, another opportunity for him to do the right thing. And it seems as if he does the right thing. He goes into Nineveh, this great city, and uh, he preaches to the people. <clears throat> and if we were making a movie of Nineveh, let's, let's, we're making a movie of Nineveh, okay? We we, we would have seen in the opening credits something that would have looked a lot like Gotham in Batman movies. Really, everything depressed and depressing. It would have been badly lit streets, people getting mugged, people doing violence, thrown into the bargain because it's Nineveh, there would be young women, young babies, and older people being thrown into the fires of the sacrifices at the altars of their gods. Really bad, bad introduction. And then then we would have seen the shadow of a figure steadily walking towards the gates of the city. As you look at the outline, he looks like Jack Bauer walking towards the city. He's determined. He's going there with a job to do. He walks through the, through the front doors and down into the middle of the street and wherever he goes, he's telling them, 40 days and God is going to nuke Nineveh. And then the most amazing thing happens. The camera shows a change in the expression of these hardened people. The lines on their face, the lines of Anger and the lines of pain are softened, their faces change, their demeanor changes by the end of the movie you 're seeing you 're seeing headlines crime figures are in free fall. people are happy again there 's joy on the streets and as The camera pans out to the city that now looks clean and bright and the sun's shining and the, the streets are cleaned and the people are clean and happy and couples are walking with their kids along the road. You see just out of the corner of your eye, outside the city, on the hill, a figure, the camera, zooms in. (laughs) I I know what you're thinking. He should have been a movie director. And you're right. (laughs) The, The camera zooms in and there's Jonah sitting. Looking as miserable. As miserable as sin. I mean, he's sitting there and he's grumpy. And he's obviously angry about something. And you think, What's wrong with him? That's the way we find the story as we come to it now in chapter four. Crime rates down, churches packed, prayer meetings full, people happy, none of us spared. God's servant, miserable, Annoyed. annoyed, looking like a spoiled schoolboy outside the city, off to the side. It's so like real life. The whole story is enigmatic. It leaves us wondering. And in many ways, it's closer, isn't it, to the real story of real people in their lives. Life is full of enigmas. People are full of contradictions. Even the most together people, even among God's servants, are complex mix of emotions and reactions. We are not always in private what we appear to be in public. Those who appear most confident and articulate in public may be the most insecure and inadequate outside the public eye. Those who profess to be the most biblical may harbor a doubt about some area of Bible truth. An individual who appears on the surface to be the most holy and uh, and spiritual, may in fact be harboring or hiding a secret area of resistance to God deep within them. What this chapter does is to take the servant of God whose exterior we've noticed so far in this story, but to take us and show us what lies beneath the surface of Of this man's life. What is it that makes this man take? We've seen his behavior. Now we're going to see what lies beneath. Well, as we come to that, we come to it really from the standpoint of what has just happened. And what has just happened is that we've seen this remarkable demonstration of the mercy of God. And so, what I want to talk about this morning is first of all, to talk about the breadth of God's mercy, and then the depth of God's mercy. You can see the breadth of God's mercy. Let's take our camera now and pan out over the stories so far. Let's have a number of images going on in our minds, uh, being shown in a split-screen manner, so that we can hold them all in tension in our minds. We remember as we come to this point that there had been mercy for Jonah. You remember? God had come to Jonah and said, go. Jonah had said, no. Jonah had bought a ticket for a trip on a ship. God had sent a big storm. Jonah had gone swimming in the, in the Mediterranean and nearly drowned, and God sent a fish. Then the fish got sick of Jonah and spewed him up on dry land. Then Jonah had gone to Nineveh, and he had preached there, and amazingly, there had been this great revival. That's the story so far. At the heart of the story so far is the rebellious heart of God's servant who went against God's will, who resisted God's go and said no, and became so bad that God had to intervene and send a storm and a fish In order to bring him to a place of repentance and that song that he sings in chapter 2 that is an amazing statement of the deliverance, the rescue, the salvation that belongs to God. There had been mercy for Jonah and there had been mercy for a bunch of pagan sailors We read about them in chapter 1, these sailors who came from a number of countries, maybe as many as 70 different countries, so the Jews believed, and they brought with them all their multiplicity of gods. So when they found themselves in a storm, what did they do? They did what pagans do. They called on their gods for help, but their gods couldn't help. And remarkably, by the end of the story, at the end of chapter 1, we find these people not only converted from their idolatry, we find them actually worshiping Jehovah. We we find them worshiping the God of Israel, paying tithes to Him, making sacrifices to Him, paying their vows to Him. There had been mercy for these pagan sailors. And then in chapter 5, as we've noted, there was mercy for the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was not a nice place. It was Gotham multiplied to the nth degree. And it was the most surprising thing that God did in sparing Nineveh. In fact, so much so, the Lord Jesus could contrast the people of Nineveh with the people of His day when He said, "'The men of Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment.'" with this generation, Jesus' generation, and condemn Jesus' generation. For they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. It was an amazing thing. And we see the breadth of the mercy of God. There was mercy for a disobedient prophet. There was mercy for pagan sailors. There was mercy for this evil city. So we look secondly then at the depth of God's mercy. You would think that this revelation of the mercy of God would have made Jonah happy. But it didn't. In fact, we find the man in a bad mood and deep depression. Look at what it says. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Literally, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, a great evil. The same word that's used when it says there at the end of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the evil that He said He would do to them. The word evil comes up again and again in in, in this little book, translated evil, calamity, disaster, discomfort, but it's the same word. Here we find that God didn't do the evil He promised to these evil people, but now Jonah is feeling evil that God has done this evil thing in sparing Nineveh. Can you see how absolutely warped and mixed up this guy is? He's completely off his clock. He is enraged with God. He is enraged with God for the compassion God has shown. Now, can you believe a prophet of God reacting this way like a petulant schoolboy? Every indication shows that a day of mercy has dawned in Nineveh, and yet he is complaining. Now, the Hebrew of verse 1 is very vivid. In light of the repentance of Nineveh, he's hopping mad. And the structure of the book parallels this verse 1 here with the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jonah's reaction to his own salvation, his own rescue, the fish turning up at the point at which he's drowning, and the seaweed's wrapped round his neck, and he's about to expire, and the fish comes and rescues him. When he thinks about that, he sings a salvation song. He sings a rescue song. But not now. God spared Nineveh. He's not singing any song now. There is a complete contrast. He's he's furious at Nineveh's reprieve. And there's also a a contrast with what God did. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did, repent, he had compassion. He withheld the evil. When Jonah saw what God did, He thought what God had done in sparing them was evil, and he was angry. Jonah was angry because God was slow to anger. Jonah is the patron saint of miserable Christians. (laughs) Do you know any miserable Christians? Grumpy Christians? Negative. They live in negativity. They live all their time in negativity. They have nothing positive to say. Everything that's happened in their life has happened badly. Everything that's come across their path has been aimed at them. Everything in life is a cause for a complaint of some kind or another. After all, this man is saying to himself, I obeyed God. I didn't want to, but I did. I obeyed Him. I did what God wanted, but God hasn't done what I wanted. I told these people of Nineveh, "I'm a prophet. Let me just tell you this," says Jonah. "I'm a prophet. Do you know what? Do you know what prophets do? Prophets speak the word of God. And this word of God was this: In forty days, I will judge you. And I delivered that word to those people in Nineveh, word for word, what God had told me to say. What is God going to do?" God goes and doesn't do it. Do you know what that means for me professionally as a prophet? Do you know how that, how that works for me professionally as a prophet? People are not going to take me seriously ever again. I mean, it's going to really affect my, my invitations to the conferences and the conventions and so on. People are not going to be interested in making a book deal with me because I've been shown to be a liar, an inadequate prophet. You can imagine he might have said something like that. What does Jonah actually do? Well, we're told in verse 2 that he prayed to the Lord. We take a breath there. That's, that's something, isn't it? He prayed to the Lord. Well, well, what's that telling you? It's telling you that he's a believer still. Well, that's, that's encouraging. We'll take any encouragement we can get from Jonah this morning. He's at least praying. That's a good sign. He gets brownie points for that. But how does he pray? Well, it's a very angry, moany kind of prayer. He's in a huff. And through his prayer, he pours out the poison in his soul. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So this is what some of you have always wanted me to be saying right through this series. Why did he rebel? Why did he leave his place and go and get a ship for Tarshish? Why did he do that? The narrative didn't tell us. So I didn't bring it up until now. Now Jonah brings it up. He tells us what was going on in his mind. Apparently, back then, he'd had a little argument with God. Is this not what I said? Said to whom? Said to God back then, in my country. Notice, he underlines my country. That's going to tell us something about the way this man looks at the world. I knew, I knew what you were like, he's saying to God. Now, this is a very interesting thing, and we must pause for a moment to see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to justify himself. He's absolutely hopping mad with God. He's hopping mad with what's happened just in, in Nineveh. He's angry. I suppose this part of him thinks he shouldn't really be angry, so he needs to give an explanation for his anger. I'm angry. I'm sorry, I'm angry. I repent of my anger. But let me tell you why I'm angry. That kind of thing. And he wants to blame God for it. He wasn't the first person. You remember the very first person to do that is Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden. And you remember what happens. Eve is deceived. Adam sins with his eyes wide open knowing what he's doing. God comes to them. He says to Adam, what have you done? Adam says, "Uh, the woman you gave me gave me to eat, and, well, I couldn't do anything else. I had to eat it, didn't I? Adam is the patron saint of every wimpy husband, (laughs) whoever was, blaming his wife for any problem that happened. And it's more serious than that, actually. Adam, at that point, is the patron saint of every rapist who blamed the girl for everybody in any organization who gathers around the man who has assaulted sexually somebody in the office and said, Well, she must have been asking for it. Okay? Adam, when he did that, that time was setting us all up for that kind of behavior, making an excuse. And here's Jonah, and he's saying to God, Actually, it was your fault. I knew what you were like, he says. What did he know God was like? He knew that God God had revealed himself to Moses. He'd revealed himself to Moses right at the time when the children of Israel were down at the bottom of the mountain and they'd... Uh, They'd melted down all the gold they'd taken with them from Egypt, and they'd made a molten calf, and they were worshiping it while Moses is talking to God on top of the mountain. And God reveals himself to Moses, and he says this to Moses, I am the Lord, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That is who I am. God had said. And Jonah had learned that. Jonah was angry because God was too slow to anger. He was angry because God was too passive in bringing the judgment. And you can see why he was angry. At one level, the Assyrians, who at this point repent, 40 years later, in the next generation, will come to Israel and commit the foulest atrocities there. If you read the book of Nahum, he tells you that there would be many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses on the street. The Assyrians would be The ones who single-handedly decapitated northern Israel, decimated the place and the people there, scattered those ten tribes to the rest of the world, that's where we get the ten lost tribes of Israel. They are lost. We cannot identify them. They are kaput. It's over for them, and it would be these Assyrians that would do that in history. 40 years after Jonah's time. If Jonah had known that, by the way, he'd have even more to complain to God about. If you hadn't spared them back then and just zapped them back then, you'd have spared us this. You can see the way people's minds work. He's blaming God. And yet God had revealed Himself. He knew what God had said, what God had said about His nature. He is good By nature. He is gratuitously benevolent. He is a fountain of mercy. He is slow to anger. God is not provoked by us. God doesn't love us because we do something lovable. He he isn't angry with us because we do something that makes him angry. God, in his being, is who he is. He's not touched by his creatures. He's not. He's not provoked by His creatures. He's not moved by His creatures. Would you want Him to be like that? If He was like that, you could never depend on Him. If, he was, if God was like a, a man or a woman, influenced by the people around Him, well, he, you would never know what mood He would be in. You would never be sure of Him at any moment. But God is not like that. God is perfect love, perfectly holy, Perfectly patient, perfectly wrathful, which is an application of His holiness, but perfectly so, and not in any way moved, provoked, or pushed into doing anything. He cannot be provoked, moved, or changed by anything outside of Himself. He is stable. If He wasn't like that, the world would be an unstable place. Well, Jonah knew that. What that meant was that if he preached to people and those people repented, God would do what he said he would do. He would forgive them. He would forgive them. So he tries to justify himself by blaming God. And whenever we justify ourselves, we're showing that our repentance isn't real. You know, somebody's, caught in doing something, they say, okay, yeah, yeah, I did it. I take responsibility. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Then you see them a week later, and they're saying, well, what I didn't tell you was, you know, this, this, and this. Well, they're telling you that they're not really repentant. They're making excuses for their sin. That's what Jonah's doing. He tries to turn God against himself by even quoting the Bible at God. What he's forgetting is that when God says those words that he quotes, God is saying to us that God himself has a free will. He doesn't ask for or need my permission. His decision to show mercy is entirely his decision. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He doesn't ask Jonah's advice. He doesn't need my permission. God will have mercy on whoever pleases him, whether they please you or not. That's the great lesson. What Jonah's is learning is God had sent him there. He knew this. He's telling us. He knew that. I knew you'd do this because why would you send me? You said you were going to judge them in 40 days. If you were going to judge them in 40 days, why did why would, did you want to send me there? I knew perfectly well. If you sent me there, it was because you wanted them to repent. You wanted them to hear the warning. You wanted them to hear your word. You know, that's always dangerous. People might believe your word. And that's what they went and did. They believed your word. He's angry at God, and he even asks for a kind of spiritual euthanasia, kill me, because I don't want to live. Now, there are are hints here now of what lies at the heart of this man, and I think it's there in those words, my country. Here's a man who has absolutely no regard for anyone beyond the bounds of of Israel. He doesn't know about the conversion of the sailors till later. So as far as he's concerned, he feels the same about everybody who's outside the bounds of Israel. Now there are forms of nationalism <clears throat> and religious bigotry that it can obscure spiritual reality. And Jonah was the, Jonah was the most dangerous kind of nationalist you can get. It's all right to be a nationalist in the sense of defending your own territory and defending your own people. That's what governments are meant to do. But here's the kind of nationalist who is antagonistic to anybody and everybody outside of the nation, outside of his people, and who hopes that God shares his attitude. That's dangerous. Somebody once came to Mr. Lincoln during the Civil War and said, well, I'm sure you're encouraged, Mr. President, to know that God is on your side. Lincoln was far too wise to accept that kind of shallow superficial nonsense and he replied, Madam, I only hope that I'm on God's side. Sometimes we're taken in taken out of our familiar environment to be shown what lies deep beneath the exterior of our lives. Jonah was taken out of his environment, out of his country. He, He was brought here to Nineveh, not just to preach to those people so that they would repent. He was brought to Nineveh so that he would lie, discover what lay beneath his own heart. God not only was concerned about Nineveh, He was concerned about Jonah. And he was shown what lay beneath the polite, polished exterior, a whole world of evil. Jonah is brought by God to this place where what was in his heart came out his lips. Jesus taught us that it's from the heart. The heart is the most significant thing. Do you know that the long-term, I think the long-term descendants of Jonah, spiritually speaking, are the Pharisees? They were were a holiness movement. They were deeply concerned about personal moral purity. They believed the Bible. But by the time of Jesus, they were far more concerned with appearance of things than they were with what was in their heart. Jesus calls them whitewashed graves. We always have to be careful. When we are formally obeying God, formally, and then God calls our bluff someday and exposes what lies beneath. Robert Murray McShane. And if you've never read Murray, Robert Murray McShane's biography by Andrew Bonard, then you need to get and read it. Every Christian should read that at some point in their life, preferably before you're 21. Some of you have to ha- uh, too late. But anyway, you can do it before you go to heaven, and then you'll be able to introduce yourself to him. But in, one of his, in his diary, his diary is amazing. He died, I think, at the age of 28. And he lived life to the full, more than any of us do in a lifetime. He wrote in his diary, I see in my heart the seeds of every known sin. He knew himself. And sometimes there are circumstances that act as a catalyst and how we react becomes an indicator of our spiritual condition. That's what we find happening here in the life of Jonah. Missionaries have told me that they, they were eager, enthusiastic, zealous believers here. And then they've gone somewhere else. And they're on the mission compound. They're mixing with people of a different race God showed them the fundamental racism, their inability to cooperate with others, their inability to work with others, the impatience that they'd never seen here. God uses circumstances to show us who we are. Well, God asks Jonah a series of questions, but I'll just look In passing at the first one, which is in verse 4, God said to him, Do you do well to be angry? Literally, have you any right to be angry? God speaks to him about his rights. He's reminding him, Jonah, when you were drowning, is it not true that a big fish that everybody's been talking about ever since turned up and caught you and swallowed you and kept you safe from drowning? Do you have any right to be angry? Weren't you spared? All I've done for them is what I did for you. And you know, sometimes God has to deal with us in hard ways to get our attention and to bring us to ourselves, and thereby bring us to Himself. There's an old hymn we used to sing at college, Depth of Mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God His wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? I have long withstood His grace long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Whence to me this waste of love? Well, ask my advocate above. See the cause in Jesus' face, now before the throne of grace. If I rightly read thy heart, If thou all compassion art, bow thine ear, in mercy bow, pardon, and accept me now. That's how Jonah should have spoken, isn't it? That's how we should speak. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds, spreads his hands. God is love. I know. I feel Jesus weeps and loves me still. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us full of mercy, love, and power. And it may very well be that you have taken away planks in our life, things on which we have leaned Securities, taken those away. Maybe you've exposed the prejudice of our nature. Maybe you've exposed the hardness of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that today you would also bring us to sight of your great mercy. You brought us to this building today that we'd hear about the mercy of God that is stable that there is mercy for us today. We pray that we would run to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and find in him the mercy we need. In his strong name we pray. Amen.